0: Welcome to Book to Warrior, 2, guys. you about the books they're reading, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. This is the second installment of our StokerCon trilogy. I feel like they're a trilogy. It's a trilogy. It's a trilogy. Tr- if you think about it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't <laughs> think about that. I don't think anybody else thought about no, it. Nobody. <laughs> nobody did. Um, <laughs> this episode, we're going to be bringing you three interviews, um... It's something we haven't done in a long time—interviewing three authors in one episode. But it has been done before here on several occasions. Uh, we're going to be bringing you first uh, an interview with Nancy Holder, uh, followed immediately by an interview with Becky Spratford, and finally an interview with F. Paul Wilson. Um, Rob, these interviews went down uh, much uh, much better than we anticipated. Would you would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think now—are you talking about our initial concern about like the organization of the event or the actual conversations themselves?
0: The conversations yeah. themselves, yeah,
1: yeah. Because this is the first time we've really kind of gone in cold. Like you've re- you've read some F. Paul Wilson, um, but I I haven't had the opportunity to read any Nancy Holder before. Really didn't know much about Becky Spratford. So like going in so um, cold to an interview was something that was new for us, but. Hey, it turns out we've been doing this so long and they have to I think the real um, we couldn't have asked for a better time to like interview someone we didn't know much about because like they were just great. Like every single one of them it's obvious that their experience in their field um, really helped them to be just excellent um, interviewers.
0: Yeah, I actually, I think with Nancy, I actually apologized to her beforehand because that was really the first interview we've ever done, having no knowledge of somebody's work. Um, and because we scheduled a bunch of interviews and, you know, some things happen with scheduling and stuff, we weren't really sure who was going to show and who wasn't going to show or whatever. We really didn't have a lot of time to prepare. But I, uh, I'm i super, super excited at how well this wound up going for, um, for, for the very little... <laughs> I don't want to say effort, but for the little effort, I mean, we did fly across the country to do these interviews. Um, But yeah, we just it's the first time like we didn't read somebody's book.
1: Yeah, but as you will discover very soon, um, they all came out wonderful, very, very happy with the results of, of
0: their interviews. We're gonna throw out some bios. We're gonna run the interviews back to back, um, and then we'll uh, we'll have some commentary at the end. So first, um, here is the bio, the the Livius edited bio for Nancy Holder. Nancy is the New York Times best selling co author of the New York Times best selling dark fantasy series Wicked. She also wrote the Crusade and Wolf Springs Chronicles series with Debbie. I'm not gonna Vigui. Sorry, Debbie and they have a teen thriller out titled the rules she also wrote the novelizations for the new ghostbusters movie as well as crimson peak and um wonder woman the upcoming wonder woman film novelization which is a really really big deal she also has a new comic book series from chimera press called mary shelley presents which will debut at the san diego comic con is chimera the same one that did um, Stephen graham jones comic wait the comic i'm not sure the hero one Yes.
1: My hero. Um, yeah, it's I think the name of the company that's publishing My Hero
0: is Hex. Huh. Not familiar with them, but anyway. No, I guess my answer is no. We, we, we don't know anything about comic yeah. books, is what you meant to say. Yeah.
1: That's yeah, yeah. Um coming up after Nancy, you're gonna hear a little bit from Becky Spratford. Here is her bio. Becky is a reader's advisory librarian in Illinois, specializing in serving patrons ages thirteen and up. She trains library staff all over the world on how to match books with readers through the local public library. She runs the critically acclaimed and popular RA training blogs, RA for All, and its horror-focused evil twin, RA for All Horror. As the author of the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror, 2nd Edition, Becky is regarded as the horror maven of the library world, and those are the words of her publisher. They, they made up the title, Horror Maven. I don't know why she tries to distance
0: herself from that. It's kind of a cool title. <laughs> It's a much cooler title than we have. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. So, <laughs> And finally, uh, an interview with F. Paul Wilson. Um, he was born towards the end of the Jurassic period and raised in New Jersey, where he misspent his youth playing with matches, poring over Uncle Scrooge in EC Comics, reading Lovecraft, Matheson, Bradbury, and Heinlein, listening to Chuck Berry and Alan Freed, and watching soupy sales and horror movies. He sold his first story in the Cretaceous period, and has been writing ever since.
1: There's a lot of Dino humor <laughs> that I was not expecting in that bio, yes. in that bio. You know, it's I have a, a friend who's a, uh, got a degree in paleontology. He should have uh, interviewed F. Paul
0: Wilson instead of us. <sighs> well, hopefully we did uh, we did okay. Were you able to edit out all the embarrassing me agreeing the like uh huh uh huh? Were you able to kill? It? No, nothing. Nope. <laughs> all right, I'm sure I'm sure there'll be more conversation. Huh? After these three interviews, we're kicking it right off with Nancy Holder. We'll be back in a little bit.
1: Nancy, thanks for taking some time out of what I have to imagine is a very busy StokerCon schedule to, uh,
0: to join us on Booked today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: While we're on the subject of StokerCon, tell us a little bit about what StokerCon and the Horror Writers Association means to you.
2: Oh, this is an easy question for me to answer. Um, I was one of the original members of Howell. Which was the Horror and Occult Writers League, which um, Robert McCammon, Joe Lansdale, and Karen Lansdale founded. And um, it cost $5 to join, and you had to sell three short stories. And I made it in. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> Dean Kuntz was one of our first presidents. Um, I could go on about Dean Kuntz because he is an amazing, generous, kind person who did many wonderful things for not just for horror, but for. Uh, other organizations such as Canine Companions, huge booster of that. So, through the years, I've been in HWA. I've been on the Board of Trustees twice. I'm on it now. I was the vice president um, after our president, Rocky Wood, passed away and Lisa Morton became the president. I became the vice president. So, I'm not the vice president now, and I'm on the Board of Trustees. I love HWA, it's had its ups, it's had its downs, it's the strongest it's ever been, and it really is a home for horror.
0: A follow-up question, which we actually had for um, Kate Jones, but she won't be able to join us today. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you like to see for the future of the Horror Writers Association, and where do you want to see this group go?
2: Um, What I would like to see is I'd like to see more mentoring, and I'd like to see more um, information gathering and sharing and facilitating and networking. I work for, um, I teach in a Master's of Fine Arts program at the University of Southern Maine. And it's a low residency program, it's called Stone Coast. And my students and alums are here. And as we were just sitting and having coffee, if I saw an agent or an editor, I'd bring them over. They're exchanging business cards, They're, they're being together. And the thing I think we forget is we start to feel competitive with each other. One guy's going to win the award, but maybe two. I tied once. Yeah. Um, and so there's this <laughs> But come this on, you were
0: really angry about tying. No, I was, was happy. The,
2: a- the Stoker <laughs> Awards are so cute and so adorable. You, you, you know, if eight people got them, mm-hmm. I'd be fine with that. But, but the idea is that, that we need to work together and share information together. And I think that HWA is doing a, a really good job of that. Um, I know the workshops that we're putting on here are, uh, People love them, they value them, um, disseminating information, um, but I'm really keen on the mentoring. Uh, I used to be in the Romance Writers of America, and we, had a, we used to call it the Big Sister, Little Sister program, where you a new author would get a sort of assigned to a more seasoned author, and they'd show them the ropes and help them out. So to get rid of that idea that we're competing, we're trying to raise the bar for horror everywhere. And so I like that, and I hope that that is our direction, that we continue to go in that way.
1: Um, Yeah, we've obviously talked to tons of authors over the years that we've been doing this podcast, and you definitely notice that there's types of people, types Mm -hmm. of authors, Mm -hmm. and the ones that I feel like are the most, um, like the ones that I I like the most are the ones where when you ask them a question, they talk about other people's stuff that they're excited about instead of their own. Like Stephen Graham Jones, for example, like he is the biggest enthusiast for everything, and so whenever we talk to him, he's got his ideas about everything that's going on. He's very tuned into the community, whereas like some people, they just kind of frame everything from the perspective of, this is what I wrote, so, Right. yeah.
2: Well, it's funny you mentioned Stephen Graham Jones, because Stephen Jones, from England, is also here. And we've talked about this, and he said, in England, at, at conventions, it's considered a little outré to talk about yourself. And he, he sort of lectured the American authors, like, talk about the genre, don't talk about your book. talk about the genre. By, By the way, I was on Werewolves of Los Angeles with yeah. Stephen Graham yep. Jones, and we made him pee on everything. He was a werewolf who had to pee on things. Just I mean, so you know. Yeah, okay. if you're
0: if you're going to, yeah, Stephen is is the guy. He's right. probably, yeah. yeah, he's he's probably the werewolf expert. I well, think, in that group.
2: somebody in the yeah. audience gave him little werewolf ears to wear. It was really cute. I have to that confess. Is, I, I saw I saw some counted. photos
0: on Facebook. It looked like it was like it was a fun a fun he was, event. It was
2: very Logan. It was very Logan.
0: You have written um, quite a number of tie-in fiction. I guess. Would be yes, the best, I have. The best yes. How does how do you feel that differs? I'm fascinated. Because I imagine it's a completely different hat than when you're writing original fiction. Which one I mean, do you prefer one? And I know the, the, the right answer is to yeah, yeah. I mean, say that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly.
2: Um, <laughs> well the, the thing that I, I've often said, and if people are listening have heard this before from me, don't be surprised I'm saying it again. But when you work in an, um, a universe of someone else's, quote unquote, um, Often you have more leeway than if you wrote your own original fiction. So let's say that you get known as a splatterpunk, or let's say you get known as a writer of high fantasy. That's what your readers are looking for next time, and you may have a battle on your hands with agents and editors, like, I want to try this. But for example, I've written over four dozen Buffy and Angel projects. Some of them have been sort of mystery-like, some of them have been funny, some of them have been more romantic, some of them have had a lot of flashbacks, so I did history. And so I got to do a lot of different kinds of writing as long as it was Buffy. And so in that way, what I think surprises people who don't do tie-ins is that there's often more freedom because the world is set and you can explore more things. So, in that way, it's more fun. Um, not more fun, but there's more freedom yeah, sure. because the freedom I found when I started working in horror is that I wrote tons of short stories. I've probably written 200 short stories and sold them. And I try that, and I try that, and I try that, and I try, try that. But once you get kind of locked in, which happens a lot, then you kind of have to keep, you know, Stephen King even talks about this. that. When he was starting out, his his editor said, "If you sell one more horror novel, you're going to be a horror writer. Is that okay?" And he was young enough to not really, yeah, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. But sometimes that happens, and suddenly, you know, good, you're good typecast. Thing, good thing for
0: him, because I mean, typecast for him worked out. Yeah. Pretty pretty well, I think.
3: Yeah.
2: So. <laughs> so, but how many times I've heard? I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't read I don't read horror, but I read Stephen King. Because yeah. what? Yeah, you know, but. It. And, yeah. I, of course, he has other things besides his strict horror. And, um,
0: but. It's important. I mean, I, I think of it a lot in musical terms. So when you're listening to a band and now they're on the Top 40 station, that they've broken the, the barriers of being an alternative exactly. band or a country band or whatever. When you exactly. start hearing them in the Top 40, they and Stephen King obviously is, is the big horror name that did that and transitioned right. over. Um, do you have a favorite tie-in that you worked on?
2: Yes, I do. Um, Hello, my editors. Um, I love all of my children, but I think the most fulfilling recently was writing the novelization for Crimson Peak. And it's because, to me, uh, Guillermo del Toro is first and foremost a writer, and I watched tons of interviews and read interviews of him. And he gave a list of the influences um, for Crimson Peak, and I got goosebumps because I had either seen or read about 90% of what he was talking about before I started the novelization. So I just read the rest of his list. And it's, he was, was, Crimson Peak is a perfect homage to the Gothic literature genre. It's perfect. And so I have a Gothic sensibility and I just read the list and rewatched all the movies he cited and I got it. And I felt like, oh, I see what you're after. And I try to just make, what I say about tie-ins is I don't want to make more than the the original creator it's their thing and i honor that so i'm trying to make it more of and so in a novel you can add interior thinking there are some scenes in my crimson peak novelization that i completely made up i didn't know if they'd let me keep them or not and um one we changed a little bit but i pretty much got to keep what i put in and it was just a joy it was such a joy and it was my first movie novelization and i'd always wanted to do one and so it was just an astounding um, opportunity to, to like stretch a little and hope, just hope, that GDT would like it. And so that was my favorite so far.
0: Did you see the movie Crimson Peak? I have not. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't. And I'm going to say who hasn't read your book and I'm going to talk about the movie. Uh, I love the movie and I love the... the It was like a non-twist in that. Like I thought it was headed in one direction and very clearly should have gone in that, and it didn't, and it made it even more wonderful, so I really enjoyed that movie a lot. (laughs) So you said something that was interesting,
1: um, how, and I don't remember exactly how you said it, but um, you don't try to make it more than. Oh, yeah. There's more of. More of. you said it. And I was thinking of, for the podcast, we've only really done one uh, novelization,
2: Mm -hmm. and that
1: was the... The the Rob Zombie Lords of Salem
2: Oh awesome
1: The Brian Evanson uh-huh. novelization of that And the funny thing about that Specifically is like He definitely did more than mm-hmm. In a way that like I think the book is so much better Than the movie <laughs> um, And I, if Rob Zombie were in the room I'd tell him the same thing uh, So in that case I loved what he did with mm-hmm. the, I think he basically took an incomplete story mm-hmm. and finished it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it was funny to hear you say, like, yeah. it sounds like you're very much honoring the original yeah. art, but in a situation where maybe you feel like there's more potential that's untapped, mm-hmm. would you try to go there?
2: Yes. Um, yes, but I would try to put it, couch it in terms of, am I doing, what, is what I'm doing sounding like what I think the original intent was? Of course, a movie is so collaborative that sometimes the original vision of whoever brought it to being gets muddled or lost or dampened and I try to imagine what did the person who created this want and I try to go there. Um, I novelized the new Ghostbusters movie and there are scenes I put in there that aren't in the movie and weren't in any script but I tried to think okay they went from this cut to this cut so I'll show what may have happened in this cut mm-hmm. and I tried for example in Ghostbusters I tried to make it really funny because it's a funny movie so um, try to think of what joke would work here what would this you know would this work and so in that way yes <clears throat> it's not like you just take the script and type it in And yeah. but sometimes it almost is like that it depends on the wishes of the person who's hired me so um Sometimes you get to do more, and sometimes you get to do less. And in the terms of Crimson Peak, I got to do much, much more. And so it was very, very exciting. And in Ghostbusters, um, uh, I got a lot of uh, inside help. Like, they'd say, okay, we, we want you to know we just recut the movie, and here's the scene list. And it would call me and tell me, and they would go, oh, okay, okay. And, you know, change it to match their, their most recent cut.
0: Um, do you find have you ever had any pushback from fanatical fans? Now I only watch the first season of Buffy um, on TV, but I, still I know like that they're rabid, <laughs> rabid fans. I mean, and I, I appreciate yeah. that because I'm that way about things too. Yeah. Um, have you ever gotten any pushback? Oh, on, on, yes. On, yeah, okay.
2: um, one of the things that would happen is that we would, we authors, um, I would find something out on an episode that I had contradicted in a book already. And sometimes it retconned, sometimes it's that they didn't remember to tell me. And there were a few times where I would think of something, and they said, we're going to have an episode about that. You can't do that. The big pushback was near the end of the entire show, um, Buffy is hanging around with Spike. But there were all these um, rumors about that David Boreanaz was going to come back in a big way, and he was Angel. Mm -hmm. So Angel was Buffy's first boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Spike came about number three and a half. Mm -hmm. So I thought that Buffy and Angel were going to get back together, and that was going to be the the thing. Mm -hmm. So I wrote an entire novel right before the show ended starring Buffy and Angel. Spike's in it, but it's pretty much the Buffy and Angel show. Mm -hmm. The people who liked Buffy to be with Spike were livid. And the day that book came out, there were 91 star reviews on Amazon because oh. as I found out, there was a secret website and people were banning together to try to get my book to fail because they wanted to send a message to 20th Century Fox <laughs> that Bubby should be with Spike. So I said, please put the word out that right now the show is ending forever mm-hmm. on on TV and if you kill my book, they'll just stop publishing books altogether. Yeah. Nobody is going to get this nuance mm-hmm. that you're after, that sure. Buffy should be with Spike. They're going to say, oh, nobody's going to read Buffy anymore, and nobody will be writing books starring sure. Buffy and Spike. So they put all the, wow. took all those reviews off Amazon. And somebody actually came to a function I was at with a tape recorder in their pocket. I got all the lowdown. And they were trying to get me on tape saying that Buffy should be with Angel so they could be more mad at me. And so,
0: yeah, <laughs> I was right. Yeah. People are, are thinking yep. crazy about this yeah. guy. So I knew it, all yeah. this.
2: So I wore my spike T-shirt,
0: and, <laughs> and just never
2: said what they wanted me to say. So I think it was the Russians. I think the Russians it's, were hacking the me. The
0: Russians, the Russians are doing a lot nowadays. Um, tell us about what you're, what you're working on now.
2: Um, what am I working on now? Well, while I'm here, I have a story that's due on Monday. Um, it's a Sherlock Holmes pastiche. It's a sh- supernatural Sherlock Holmes. I'm a Sherlockian. I absolutely adore Sherlock Holmes. Um, I'm a member of a Sherlock Holmes scion, and our scion is the Sound of the Baskervilles in Seattle.
1: heard
2: of them. Oh, you have? Yeah, oh, it's we're so clever. awesome. That's a clever name. Thank you. And um, <laughs> let's see, what else am I doing? Right now, I'm just kind of waiting for notes and things, but I, uh, with my very first ever Buffy editor, We just finished a Buffy encyclopedia for the 20th anniversary of Buffy, and it covers Angel, Buffy, and the comics, and I was the comics guy. And um, the comics were vast and varied, and oh my lord, which is canon, which is not canon. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure we got it right. And um, I just turned in a comic book for a project I can't talk about, but I am so very, very stoked about it, I can't even tell you, so.
0: Thank you for your time, Nancy. It's been a pleasure. Well, you
2: guys are cute, and thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's always nice to talk to cute boys on a Saturday morning, so (laughs) thank you.
1: Becky, thanks for taking some time to join us here at StokerCon to talk a
0: little bit about what you do.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: All right, so of all the people we were scheduled to interview, I find your profession, I'm sure I'm going to find you fascinating as well, but your profession, (laughs) I'm absolutely fascinated. Tell our listeners what it is you do exactly.
4: Sure. So I am what's called a reader's advisory librarian. And a lot of us don't really like the term because it doesn't tell lay people what we do. So when I describe it to people who aren't in the library lingo biz, I say, it's like a reference librarian, but for everything you want to read for fun. So what we do as Reader's Advisors, maybe at your library they call it reader Services, and it's mostly with adults and teens because with children, that's part of their job, the children's librarians, suggesting all kinds of books to people. A lot of times adults don't think we're there to help them find things for fun. So since the 1980s, before my time in the library world, um, there started to be this resurgence of giving people what they want to read and helping them find it. When people think of a library, the first thing that comes to mind is books. And there's been studies to prove that. You ask people on the street what they think of with libraries, you ask the guy who only comes to the library to check out DVDs, you ask the guy that only comes to check his Facebook, you ask the lady who's only there for the crocheting things, or the class, and she said they say books. And that's our sort of our brand, but our business is really reading. Uh, every library has something about lifelong learning and reading in their mission. Whether it's teaching them to read the news and decipher what's real and what's not, whether it's teaching them to read the internet, whether it's teaching them or finding them a book to read for fun, like a horror book or anything else, a romance book. That's what we do. So I actually got very lucky when I went to library school um, to get my master's degree. I took a course in reader's advisory. uh, And in that course, I learned, oh my gosh, I can do this for a living. I knew I wanted to be a public librarian. I knew I wanted to help everyone. I love the fact that there are no barriers to getting in the public library. Any person and every person needs the public library. And that really spoke strongly to me. Um, I joke that you know I'm a librarian, my sister's a social worker, my other sister's a nurse. Somehow we sort of all gravitated toward these service jobs. Um, and my dad was in sales. I have no idea how that happened. Um, but we. Um, I really feel strongly about the public library. And I thought, well, I'll work in reference. I'll help people. And when I found out about this, I just, that was it. I ran with it. I found my first job at the Berwyn Public Library, which is just outside the city of Chicago, just south of Oak Park, for all those people who don't know. And we border Chicago. Very lucky that Illinois, I know you guys are from Illinois, we have the best public libraries in the country. And I say that because I live there. I'm actually from New Jersey, so sorry, New Jersey. But we really do. Studies show that us in Ohio do the best job. And one of the things in the great state of Illinois is... Any single person in the state can walk into any public library. And as long as they have a card from their home library, they are allowed to check out materials from the library they walk into. So we serve a lot of Chicago uh, patrons, and we have a whole system for doing that. And um, so I just help people. I love it. And to help them find books for fun, books they would love, books that they would just could change their life, like books changed um, all of our lives, I'm Mm -hmm. sure. I wouldn't be a librarian. You wouldn't be doing a podcast if they didn't. Mm -hmm. That is so powerful and so wonderful. And to get to do it for adults and, and teens, I did teens also, who kind of feel like they lost that magic, it was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful 15 years of serving patrons and running that department in. We got to create one that just did Reader's Advisory, one of the first in the country, and really grow it and just serve leisure readers. Um, but in the meantime, I was also um, started getting asked to teach that Reader's Advisory course that I taught with one of my mentors, Joyce Serix, who, if anyone out there is in library world, she kind of created with Nancy Pearl, they're like the two most famous reading librarians, um, Reader's Advisory. So Joyce and I taught the course together when our, the professor who taught me went on sabbatical and we did it for eight years, teaching together and alone and, and sharing the load. Um, so I trained a lot of the, the Reader's Advisors you'll find all over the country, but a lot in Illinois. I just met one who took our course that's now in Cedar Rapids when I was there recently. And so that was wonderful, but what happened was that opportunity led to more training, less time at the library, and I was trying to balance both the times. I had a great boss who they let me hire, who, you know, she ran everything, but we did everything in tandem, and then she got a great opportunity to go somewhere else. And they wanted the leadership to fall back on me, and I was starting to travel all over the country training librarians to be great, to be wonderful at helping leisure readers and spreading the joy of it. And so I had to make a choice, and my choice was to do, to do the spreading the joy of it. And so I now spend my time writing a blog, RA for All, which I've been actually doing since 2007, which is a training blog for librarians. As my kids say, you're very famous in library circles. I say yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's funny, the, the horror authors all love it, because I have a horror blog, too, because in 2012, uh, or so 2012, it came out my second edition, which is much better than the first edition. Of the they readers, are. The yeah. Like the Reader's Uvisory Guide to Horror um, and from Ala Editions. And so I'm sort of the horror maven librarian in the country. And I run a blog for regular librarians, Ari for All, and it's Evil Twin, Ari for All Horror, which is much more of a resource for librarians. I call it like the free um, next edition to the book, because as soon as the book came out, it was it was out of print, basically. I mean, it was it was in print, but it was not valid anymore. Lots of it. So I do that um, also. So I travel the country training librarians. Usually I'm not training them to help horror readers. I do a lot of like how to do reader's advisory, how to be better at book talking, how to put up better displays, how to have patrons more involved in your services. And what happens is I always sneak in a little horror stuff in (laughs) there
1: sometimes. Um, This is not really necessarily a question, but we were... um, as we're hanging out and talking to people um and we're mentioning who we're you know going to be talking to um mentioning your name uh everybody's like oh librarian and like like in a very excited kind of like oh a librarian
4: jeff strand so, told me we've been on a few panels together and um i just adore jeff strand and and one of his books dweller is one of my favorites he writes a lot more that's for adults he writes a lot more middle grade and, and ya now but he told me my mom was more excited that you were that I was in your book than when my books came out because that meant that I was important because the librarians wanted me to, to be there. It's funny, you know, we're finding that um, I have been Lisa Morton, the president of the HWA. I've been a, an active member because I am a writer. I write mm-hmm. about horror, and mm-hmm. they've been very welcoming from the start to to invite me as a professional mm-hmm. writing member, which I've greatly appreciated. And I've worked with Lisa Morton, the president, but also JG Fardy, the library. Uh, liaison for many years on on projects but Lisa is um, talking to me now about there's so much interest because I'm here about doing a little more training for the writers on um, library stuff so I'm on a panel today I know this will be in the future but I'm on a panel for the library writer connection and people don't know how libraries work they don't know how their books get into libraries they they think they can just come and hand their book to librarian and it's gonna get at it and although we would love to do that libraries are a huge bureaucracy and there are so many rules and collection development policies because as well as being a librarian I'm also a trustee so I understand all the rules and why they're in place so one of the things I tell I'm gonna be talking to them about today is how you can get yourself into the library one of the advice I'm gonna be giving I'll give you guys a preview because you'll be busy I'm sure and not at my panel (laughs) Um, but that one of the big new trends in libraries is organizing cons at libraries Um, and doing cons at libraries. One of the biggest ones Christopher Golden, a horror author, does at Haverhill Library in Massachusetts. And he's wonderful. He's helped me out on many projects. Really a good friend of libraries. And um, Kansas City does a big con. There's some in Seattle. So if you want to, you know, as a horror author, you want to go in and say, hey, I'm going to get together all the other genre writers that are in this area and do a con. And you, you know, I'll do it for free. I'll organize it for free. Can we sell our books? Can we? Nice. You get so many people to come.
3: That is so cool. that would be a great
4: way for writers to get involved with libraries. But on the flip side, I've been telling my librarian friends on my blog, we need to get more involved with the writer's societies. They want librarians to join. Um, Yes, I'm a professional writing full member, but they have a level, the, the horror writers, the science fiction, fantasy, the romance, for like fans and librarians. And we need to get in there more so that we can let them know what we can do for them. It's totally different than the bookstore model. And so Lisa Morton and I are talking about providing a little more concrete training for the writers in a more, you know, that I would actually prepare some materials and maybe do some presentations that they can record and share with members. And I told her I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, I want, I take my job as the library world's horror maven, those are my publisher's words, um, very seriously. <laughs> I want to get horror books into libraries. I, I review for Booklist Magazine. Um, I review as much as I physically can because I know that if it gets in there, librarians will look at it and consider it. Um, I am advocating for them on Twitter all the time, the authors. I Whenever somebody's out there on Twitter, you know, I need a scary book, but I don't know what to read. The, the hordes of library Twitter send it to me if I don't see it. And they say, Becky, this is for you. You know, answer this. And, it you know, I spend a lot of my time just trying to slide horror in everywhere. Thankfully, it's more popular than it has been in a while. Yeah. So it's not hard. But, yeah.
0: What does that process look like? Not mm-hmm. specifically for horror, but horror either way. Like, how does someone go about making a recommendation for somebody to on what? They should be reading or what they might like reading. That's, but they should be
4: reading but yeah. I have an entire talk called mm-hmm. RA for All, which mm-hmm. is why I called my company that. Um, reader's advisory for everyone, both everyone in the library mm-hmm. and everyone who comes in. And in it, on my blog, on the right gutter, um, you can do uh, 10 rules of basic, Becky's 10 rules of basic readers advisory service. But the basic rundown is you talk, start talking to people about what they like about a book because it's not the plot that they're looking for for a similar suggestion. So if you say, okay, so one of the books I give out all the time to people who think they don't like horror is Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I say is, I'm like, all right, you can read this book because it's an apocalyptic tale, it's a horror book too, but it's not very bloody. It is super intense. Imagine a world where if you open your eyes, you will go homicidally crazy, kill everyone around you and then kill yourself. And they go, oh. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but you don't see a lot of the blood. You might see the aftermath. There's a couple gory scenes. And they're like, well, that's what I am Imagine living your life with your eyes closed. You know, that's they're not looking for when they say I came in a red bird box and I really liked it, they're not saying, I would like another book where everyone has to close their eyes and no one can open them. And that's not what they're looking for. Um, another great example of a popular book is The Martian. My um sound bite to patrons is, well, it's MacGyver on Mars. And they're like, oh, or they're like, no, not for me. Mm-hmm. So many people, they say, oh, I don't like science fiction, but I read The Martian. Because you read The Martian, just because it's set on Mars doesn't mean you want another book that's set on Mars. You want a book with adventure, with a protagonist who is in dire, dire straits, but manages to use his wits and what's around him to get through. Well, I have a book for you. That talking about a book about its feel is called in the reader's advisory term uh, world appeal terms. It's when we talk about the storyline, the characters, the pacing, the mood and the tone. And specifically with horror, mood and tone are first. You have to have this creepy, anxious atmosphere. But if you're reading an adventure book, it's pacing. How fast does it move? So when we talk to patrons about the books they're reading, we don't necessarily want them to tell them the plot. I do with training when I go into libraries, and I do this with every staff member, from the janitor to the director, because my goal is to get everyone at the library talking about the books they love, and then listening to people tell them about the books that they love and one of the things I do is I say you know when you read um, a fast-paced book that's what you're gonna talk about right so think about a book and you guys can do this right now if you want we're not gonna have time to do the exercise but I tell them think about a book that you love a book that's really popular a book that you enjoy and then I'm gonna go through and I am going to talk about pacing and I make you think about the pacing and I make you think about the characters and I go through more specifics about those appeals and I have them circle words about the book nothing to do with plot. They just write the title at the top and then they circle words and they write down adjectives. Um, and then I tell them, star the areas that are three most important. Because if you're reading um, James Patterson, pacing's important, but if you're reading The Goldfinch by Donna Tart, pacing is not important. Um, and that's fine, you just you want to mark it. And then I tell them then, now look to your neighbor for two minutes, you are gonna describe your book to your neighbor with nothing but those adjectives. So you don't get to tell them the plot, you don't get to tell them what happens. And you as the listener, You have to listen and learn to listen and hear what they're telling you and think about books that are similar. And that's the start of it. Start with the books you love and describe them to someone and then listen to someone describe to you. It's an art, but we do have a standard class that we do it. I did this recently at a library in Indiana, and the director was not convinced that she should have all her staff come. And I'm like, at least for my first talk, let everyone come, even the maintenance guy. The maintenance guy became my biggest fan. He came to all my talks that day. He now, she's told me, is wandering around the library talking to patrons about books constantly. The library's never been cleaner because he's happier (laughs) with his job. And the patrons love him. So it's a great way to get staff re-energized, patrons re-energized. I mean, you guys don't need to hear me, you know, sell it because you do this. But it is such a fun and great job. So now I try to teach other people to do it, but it takes time. And they need help with specific genres. Um, Studies have found, Library Journal's May 1 issue of 2017 uh, has a cover story, which they asked me to help with, on helping genre readers, because there was a study done by a bunch of groups that's in there, I'm sure people that listen won't know, library mumbo jumbo. And they said that what librarians are most scared of is helping genre readers. Because if you don't read a genre yourself and you get to a huge fan, what are you gonna do? Well, two things I have to say to that. One, you need to learn, which is what we did in the Library Journal series. But two, the secret is, when you like a genre, you're actually the worst person to help someone who also likes that genre. Because one of my rules is, everyone reads a different version of the same book. So my friend and I both say, if you asked us, do you like fantasy? My friend Brianna will say like, yeah, I love fantasy. And ask me, I love fantasy. But what if you asked us what our favorite types of fantasy books are? Hers are long, epic series like Robert Jordan. Mine are really dark, single. If they're light, they're light, like uproot it, like Naomi the which isn't that light. Um, or Neil Gaiman, or these kind of things. Those aren't the same books. So if, if someone who likes the book she likes comes up and tells me, I love fantasy, and I think so do I, I'm gonna give you Neil Gaiman. That's gonna be a huge problem. She's not gonna be happy. You actually have to listen harder when it's something you like. So what we did in library journalism, they had me find experts all over the country. I did the one on horror. Um, I have it all on my blog um, this week. But you can find it at Library Journal, making, um, helping genre readers making genre easier. And um, we did Mystery and Thriller, Romance, YA for Adults, Horror, a couple other things. Oh, Science Fiction Fantasy. And it's a really great primer to start showing people. Anyone can go read those on LibraryJournal.com. They're free. Um, to see what it would be like for what I do.
0: I honestly think you may have one of the coolest jobs. I mean, your passion definitely shows. Um, But that's, you know, I mean, I grew up in libraries, and and I've spent less time there since the advent of the internet, because now it's all, I don't have to go to a library, which I know is a terrible thing to say to a librarian.
4: No, you know what, we actually love our digital users. We are really pushing now between the e-reading and the hoopla and the streaming music uh, and all the databases. We don't care. That's the thing. People (laughs) think librarians care if we come in the building. We don't care. We just want to be there to help you. Some people need the space now. Libraries are also becoming good community spaces for people to meet. And as someone who now works from home, I'm at the library a lot when I need to get away from the mm-hmm. dirt in my house and actually work. <laughs> um, but the we don't care. We count digital use the same as coming in. Oh, nice. And it's so funny because we're like, well, I feel so bad. I don't. Well, do you download books? Oh, all the time. I'm like, then you use the library. Mm-hmm. It's okay. So don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I um. I didn't know this was a thing. I mean, I, I recall one story. I, um, I was trying to track down every Richard Lehman book ever written. And at one point, um, he had done. So I, I go in, and I look it up on the computer. And, and I'm seeing adult ED, which means nothing to me, or what I thought it was definitely wasn't what it was. Um, so I asked somebody for the adult ED <laughs> section. And the nicest gentleman ever walks me over there. But I, I'm starting to to get a weird He's talking to me a little oddly. And I, I realize I'm in the adult education I was about section. To say, I think
4: that's what that Which is. was
0: great, but I, you know, <laughs> I'm going no, no. I'm tracking, and he's like, no, no. It's okay. It's yeah. Because you know, he like, was so kind; so, he
4: wasn't judging he you, was
0: right? And I was like,
4: you bring up oh, a really I good point like, with what I do, yeah. Readers Advisory. One of the key things is it's non-judgmental. It's mm-hmm. also one of yeah. my rules on those yeah. Becky's Ten yeah. Rules. Um, if this is a true story, if somebody wants to read the book that James Patterson won the Nobel Prize for, yeah. which actually happened to me, that question, you don't say to them oh, honey, he's never going to win the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Nor do you start giving a lecture like, well, you know, the Nobel Prize is for a body of work. It's Mm -hmm. not for one single Mm book. You just figure out what she actually wants. Mm -hmm. And the the short version of this is she wanted a book for which he won a prize, which was his first novel. He won the Edgar Award for Best Mm -hmm. First Novel, the Thomas Berryman number. Mm -hmm. But the point is it's not, we we pick on, I pick on James Patterson all the time. We love him at the library because he brings people in. Because no one on earth... Not even Bill Gates can afford to buy all of his books. It's just impossible. But also people need more because they read so They read a lot. Um, but we also, he takes all my budget too, because I have to buy all his books in multiple copies. However, it's not simplistic. He doesn't write simplistically. You know, he writes unembellished. And you know, a book isn't slow, it's methodical. Because if you tell somebody who loves Edward Rutherford's giant doorstopper um, historical fictions, which are fantastic, if you say, oh, you want another slow book, they'll be like, those are not slow. They are, but the reader reading them wants to spend time with the book and go through it methodically. They don't think of it as slow, they think of it as what they want. So I love that you had that non-judgmental experience. All librarians do that. We all try to take everybody for their needs and their specifics and not pass judgment. However, in the past, librarians were a little bit bad about being judgy to readers. And that goes back way to when Reader's Advisory was first invented in the 1930s, when actually it was invented to be judgmental, to force readers to move up reading levels. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of stayed a little. And And librarians can be a little nose in the air about the books they love, which is why I love going around and telling them how great horror is, because they see me as this expert in the library world, as someone they look to for advice, and. I somehow have fangirls and boys too, which is weird, but um, it looked to me for advice and all these things, and, and then they say, well, she reads horror, maybe I'll try horror, and I, I feel so glad that I can mm-hmm. do that. I have friends that do that for romance. My friend Robin Bradford was 2016's Romance Writers of America's Librarian of the Year, and she, one of the smartest people I know, um, Bright, she's at Timberland um, Library in Washington State, and she is a lawyer too, I mean, and everyone's like, well if Robin says I can read romance, I can read, you could have anyway, you don't need her permission. <laughs> I also do want to make a distinction I haven't made, which I do very try to very much, and I, I forgot to, I talk about Ari for all I've been using the word librarians, I want to say library workers, on my blog it says training library workers, not everyone who works in a library is a librarian, um, I don't care so much. I use the term, however, technically you have a library degree, a master's degree of library science, which I do. You're a librarian. There's still a lot of judgyness in the field. Well, they're not a librarian. I don't care about that. I train library workers. When patrons come in the library, every person who works in the library is a librarian to them even the high school kid putting books on the shelf.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Same thing at a written. pharmacy, right? We assume yeah. everyone's a pharmacist and it's not true, but they're still the people that are going to take care of your needs. So, And they
4: know mm-hmm. to come to the people that are the experts mm-hmm. when they need mm-hmm. to. Yep. So I say I train library workers. And when I use the word librarians, I use it to mean everyone who works in a library. There are a lot of people out there who don't agree with that. And we've had some public arguments in library journals about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, is there is there any type of book that you would just never recommend?
4: Is this is going to sound like a non-answer. I, first of all, I love that question. Yeah. yeah. This is going to sound like a non-answer, but it is the answer. You never want to recommend a book that is your favorite just because it's your favorite. That is the biggest mistake that library that library workers make. Um, just because you love it doesn't mean the person will love it. So you wanna make sure you're recommending the book, and we actually call it suggesting the book, because recommend is a strong word, and it puts a lot of pressure on people to finish the book.
1: Recommend implies uh, professional, like, exactly. yeah. yeah.
4: So we have staff recommendation shelves, which are great, where where staff can rave about the books they love. So we say, and that's one of my other rules on that list of Ted Becky's 10 Rules, suggest, don't recommend. By the way, you'd be surprised, I say this to people and they laugh, but I think they think it's true, I say, you know, try this book. It sounds like you would like it, that's a suggestion. If you don't like it, close it and bring it back. Look at all these other books we have, you yeah. know. And every... I said, and then I go, we don't know if you finished it or not. And they laugh nervously, but it's true. I think they think we judge them if they finish it or not, and they're worried to return a book they didn't finish. We have no idea, we don't care. I even say, I won't take it personally, I didn't write it. Mm-hmm. So never suggest a book just because you love it to someone. Always suggest a book because they would love it. I often say romance is my least favorite genre. They're my favorite readers to help because they are passionate, that pun is intended, about what they read (laughs) and they um, (laughs) share and they have such affection for the books they love and why they love them. And so I love trying to find them another book that they never heard of. I feel like it's a victory if I find them a new author and they love it. The horror people are fine, but they're like, well, just tell me what you like. And I'm like, I can't do that. Horror is what, thank yeah. goodness I know all of them. <laughs> what, what are you? What do you want to be scared of? Like if you give, you, you like Richard Layman. I love Richard. I love Richard Layman too. Not for everyone. No,
0: no. And that's, very yep. violent yep. and mm-hmm. very, but mm-hmm.
4: but the writing, mm-hmm. when I tell people I think he wrote, he wrote beautifully, they're like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? Those books are disgusting. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you have to be the kind of person, mm-hmm. so I give you Richard Layman. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't give, yeah. you know, somebody who thinks gross, like, who liked Bird Box. I wouldn't be like, well, now you should read Richard Lehman, because he's my favorite.
1: <laughs> but that's a very good point. And I think that Livius and I both do this, where when someone finds out that we review books for a living, the first question is, like, oh, what's your favorite book? And I don't answer it, because, um, well, I give him the lame answer of, like, my favorite book could be the next one I read, or something like that. Yeah. You know, just because, like, it is true. Like, I could fall in love with a book that, you know, tops everything. But... I love, probably if I had to name one, it would be like The Raw Shark Text by Stephen Hall. Okay. And I know that like almost everybody I talked to would be so turned off by that book. So there's a lot of validity to what you said because like I've, we've been living that for the yeah. entire time. Yeah,
4: and you have to just be careful. They always want to say, well, or they'll say things like, did you read it? I'll be like, well, I haven't read this book, but I know lots of patrons who liked it. Okay. Or if maybe if I did read it, I'll be like, you know what? It wasn't my favorite type of genre, but it's definitely yours. Come back and tell me why I should love it. that's another great thing we want to the big thing about readers advisory in the community is it's one of the best sellers of the library like why the library is great why the in-person experience is so wonderful I also do a talk about bridging the physical virtual divide and providing that personalized experience in an online platform so putting your reviews online getting in conversations about books however you can in an online format that works for your library Um, is really important to have that really personal experience. But people want to know all the time what my favorite books are. Yeah. And so what I do, I did a, so Public Library Association for the last two years has hired me to do their end of the year big webinar that they give out free to members. Um, and they, they always did like a best books, you know. But they let me do it. So I did last year a whole thing about best books is whatever you think is best for different reasons. Yeah. And so I always do the best books I've read this year list. And last year for that webinar I did three. I did the best book I read and it was because of the experience, it was The Sympathizer on the Pulitzer Prize, and I always mess up his name, but uh, Nguyen is his last name. Um, and why was it the best book I read last year, even though it was from like two years before? Because I was hired in Northern Illinois to lead a series of book discussion trainings with librarians all over the state um, over the course of a few months. And I got to talk with that book with so many different people. I loved the experience. I liked the book too, but I don't think I would have liked it nearly as much if I hadn't had the experience. The best audiobook I read last year was Homegoing by Yagisi. And that book, I actually can give to everybody. It's a historical fiction, and as an audio, it's amazing, of two sisters in, I believe it starts in the 1700s in Africa, and it was a debut novel. And they don't know they're half-sisters. They know that each other exists, but they don't know each other. One ends up being sold to the slave trade, and one ends up married to the white governor of that African um, part of the whatever Mm -hmm. group it is, colony. And it tells the stories of their offspring, and they're short. It like tells the, the next generation, um, and the generation that gets told next is always in the stomach of the generation, in the uterus mm-hmm. of the, the generation. So you see them as they're like conceived and then as they're living. And it goes on to the present. It was a wonderful story that I've given to everyone because it's like a story about Africa throughout the years and America throughout the years. And then the best horror book I read last year, uh, well, Technically, the best horror book I read last year was *The Fireman* by Joe Hill, but everyone knew about that. So my second best one was *Children of the Dark* by Jonathan Jantz, and I sent that out to everybody. I tell you. And it, he got—he's very good writer, but it's also like a perfect *Stranger Things* read-alike, even though he didn't know *Stranger Things* was coming out. It has a 1980s feel, but it's set sort of it's set now, but it has that feel. Like an old time Stephen King. I think I called it Stand By Me Meets Something Wicked This Way Comes in my review.
1: Nice.
4: So <laughs> so you know, you can have so I explain to people why I like them when I have a book yeah. I like. And I say, but then get in a conversation. So that's the best books I read last year. What are the best books you read? Mm-hmm. Or what's a favorite book of all time? And so you can get around the question that way. Well, here's my favorite book. Here's why I love it. Here's why you probably wouldn't. Now you tell me what your favorite yeah, book is. And
1: then you build on that. And
4: then you just keep having a conversation. And that's where the magic happens.
0: Becky. This is where the magic happened. This, yeah. I, I <laughs> Wow. Um, I want to thank you because that was a very enlightening conversation. We're running out of time. I was going to edit that down. But um, Thank you for a fascinating conversation and thanks for throwing out some recommendations at the end because you know, through the course of the conversation, I was like, I can't really ask her to recommend anything because she just said like I can't really recommend stuff because <laughs> of these. I'm voices. always prepared. So excellent. <laughs> and, Thank and you very much for welcome. your time. Paul, thanks so much for
1: taking some time out of your, your StokerCon. I'm sure a very busy schedule to talk to us on booked a little
0: bit. I'm oh, glad to. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with the Horror Writers Association.
3: Well, I was uh, I was there at the very beginning when um, I think it was Coons and Lansdale. Um, it was called H O W L, and I'm not sure. I knew horror was in there, horror uh, and what? occult writers' league. League, maybe. maybe that was it. Okay, Howl, uh-huh. um, which I thought was pretty hokey, but um, <laughs> and I and you know then I said I, I don't know if I'm really going to join that. Um, and then Dean called me up and said, "Yeah, we'd really like to have you in it, and we're we're going to be calling it uh, HWA, Hard Writers of America." Then, and I said, "Okay, as long as I don't have to serve on any committee or do anything, because I had just come out of SFWA as their Eastern Regional Director, and it just ate up so much of my time. I was putting on Nebula banquets, and I was putting on writer editor uh, receptions, and." Uh, It just, my writing, I was still practicing full time in medicine and and I was doing a book or more a year so I didn't, I I was overwhelmed so I said I'll join but don't ask me to do anything other than be a member.
0: How hard was it to to step
3: away from, from Repairman Jack after so many years? It's not easy because you get into a comfort zone. And you have his milieu, you have his circle of contacts, you have the backstory you've been building you know, for oh, how many years was it uh, Almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go back to the first novel, which I, back in 1984, I didn't have any uh, intention of taking it past that. But, so you go back that far and, and you're talking uh, quite a few years. And, but it was time. Um, the backstory had expanded to the point where it was taking over. I used to do novels which would expand the backstory and have a self-contained front story, and uh, the front story started merging into the backstory, and it just got to the point where I could keep on doing book after book, and. Collect the paychecks, and but the thing is, it's it's a big part of my life's work, and I didn't want it to be sullied by too many books. Oh. Uh, I mean, everybody has favorite authors who've taken a series too far, and I always think of uh, Robert Parker Spencer, which I thought the first ten or a dozen were some of the best P.I. fiction ever written. But then he started repeating
0: himself. I, I'm not going to mention the author that comes to mind because he is alive and well. And I But yes, I, I know exactly, exactly. I didn't what he, want to be that guy. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am going to ask. It's interesting, and, and I'm not much of a Lovecraftian fiction person, but whenever I'm asked, I'm, I'm, I'm brought to Repairman Jack for the cosmic horror aspect. Um, It was really interesting that you picked an everyman, although he had, you know, a special set of skills to to go up, but you're you're a real regular playing guy. It always seems to be that there's some, we just read The Fisherman by John Langdon, Um, and the protagonist in that, the, the historical protagonist in that has, you know, all this information about the occult, and that's how he's able to fight cosmic horror. Um, How did you come to the, the decision to take an everyman and put him in a place that traditionally was held by somebody that was you know, a grand sultan of some occult organization or something that had you know, prior
3: <laughs> knowledge, I guess? Well, there was a, there was a number of reasons. Um, first of all, the tomb was supposed to be a standalone. And um, I had started off with that scene on the roof with the mother of Akash. And that's where I worked backwards and forwards from that. So I had to have a guy who could survive that. But I, and Jason Bourne was like the the big thing then. The Bourne Identity was a huge bestseller at that time. And that was the one thing I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do Jason Bourne. And I usually take things and turn them upside down. Um, I just, the, the first uh, sword and sorcery story, or the only sword and sorcery story I ever did, the guy never draws his sword. It was just, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to do it. And and uh, I wrote the uh, that Joker story, Definitive Therapy, and I said, I'm not going to have Batman appear at all. Yeah. So, um, I always try to turn it upside down. So I said, I'm going to do the anti-Jason Bourne. And so he's never been in the CIA, he's never been in special ops, he has no connection to officialdom, he can't call on anybody other than the contacts he's made. And also I said, let's make him more of an outsider. He's never even paid taxes. So, <laughs> you know, it's... That was the the everyman because I also wanted an everyman because to confront you know if if you're um an occult detective and you you're familiar with all this stuff i mean you're you're when you're faced with a brakash you're gonna have a different uh response than than someone who is grounded in in the mundane world and in it's gonna be a whole different it's it's one's gonna be oh, I know what that is. The other one's going to be, holy shit, <laughs> what is that? And so that's what the reader should be feeling. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to get away from the, the Jules de Grandin type of character and make him you know Joe every day, you know, drinking a beer guy. Wonderful, wonderful stuff.
0: I know back and forth on blogs for years there's been talk and hopes and whatever of seeing Repairman Jack in another medium, as in movies or television. Um, I'm not going to ask if that's going to happen. I'm going I'm to ask what your
3: hopes are for that. Well, the movie is, is gone. I mean, uh, they've, they've circulated so many inferior scripts that uh, nobody wants to see another script with Repairman Jack on it, as far as theatrical films go. Even though the last one was written by Chris Morgan, is absolutely excellent. It's just that you know, everybody's tired. Uh, Beacon put out a, a bunch of bad scripts, and you know, so they're trying. Um, and Chris Morgan, you know, he went went on for he now does Fast and Furious, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got he's like his own mini industry now. Right. Um, he's bringing back the Universal monsters and everything. But and Chris did a great job. But um, that they're looking at TV now, and you know they, they always tease me along. You know, say so and so is interested in the character, and you know, blah blah blah. So I've gotten to the point where I, you know I say, okay, fine. You know, and that's, um, and, and you know, the, the last one they told me about, they, they do have a, a working relationship with him, and maybe it's, it'll, and maybe he really is. But you know, whether they'll actually come to terms and know have a, a TV show I mean the, the networks are have passed mm-hmm. so maybe it's gonna be Netflix or it's gonna, I was gonna be... say
0: listen it's not a bad thing when the networks pass anymore
3: some of those other some of those other avenues have have figured it out so, yeah, yeah and also they, they have more leeway and mm-hmm. sure. what they Absolutely. can do yeah. than the network so I mean I wasn't disappointed but you know I'll see where they, where they take it
1: yeah.
3: you're back to writing um,
0: medically, mostly medically accurately, I would imagine. Thrillers. Um, your last, uh, Panacea, am I saying that right? No, Panacea. See, a Panacea. I knew I was going to, I was practicing oh, on the just, way here yeah. with one of the people we're staying with. Panacea. Um, <laughs> how, how does that differ? You know, like I said, we just talked about how long you spent working in a completely different realm.
3: Um, do you prefer one over the other? Or? Um... I mean I've uh I've been thinking about Panacea for a long time. I just ha- hadn't been able to get to it because we're doing you know I was doing some of the YA Jack novels and other stuff. Um so that thing fermented for a long time. And so when I was ready to write it 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 just rolled right out. Um, and so did the sequel uh which will be uh The God Gene uh coming January. Uh it It was what well, i I have a, a hero who's pretty much a tough guy. He's like a secondary character for a while there, um, and he's pretty much a tough guy and it's I have to consciously not make him like Jack <laughs> and uh, because you know I want to try something different. Uh, so mostly I have a, a female protagonist who who carries the uh, the adventure and this guy's sort of a something of a mystery man. Um, But I did, uh, and I got out of New York. See, that was one of the things I wanted to do, too, as long as I'm not doing Repairman Jack, because Jack is sort of agoraphobic outside New York Mm -hmm. City and uh, the five boroughs, you know. And I I took him to Florida once, and he didn't like it. Um, So this one, I I continent hop, you know. We go from, it starts off in New York, but it goes to... uh, Mesoamerica, then it goes to Israel, and then it goes to France, and then it goes to Scotland, so, and then back to uh, New York, so um, I get to go to a lot of different places with my characters, and that, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I'm busting out. I would oh, say, so yeah, it's like, like you're stretching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, I'm I'm having fun with them, I'm, I'm doing the third book now.
0: I was, and I was, I was just going to see, you already mentioned the
3: sequel, and I, I try not to pry, but mm. what, what are you working on I'm next? I'm working on I the guess, third one. Excellent. Yeah. Very nice. It may just be three of them, you know. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't want to push it. If if, um, if three is, is is going to take the characters through the whatever arcs I have for them, then I'll stop there. Excellent. All right,
1: you just heard three awesome interviews: Nancy Holder, Becky Spratford, and F. Paul Wilson. And I want to say that you probably noticed this, but I'm going to call this out. Um, I didn't ask any questions to F. Paul Wilson. It was it was all oblivious. There's a reason
0: for that. Um, you also hopefully didn't hear me three times have to ask the first question because I was completely starstruck. I love F. Paul Wilson.
1: It was it was the funniest thing because you just like kept like stumbling over your words like like a nervous boy like you were trying to ask someone out to prom or something. It was adorable. I'll,
0: I'll tell you, and that's like I felt warmer and warmer like sweat was breaking out of my forehead because <laughs> I couldn't do it right. It was terrible, and I don't get starstruck often. Um, but I've been reading off Paul Wilson's stuff for – it's got to be going on 20 years now and uh, absolutely love it. As a matter of fact, right after that interview, I went out and uh, got a copy of that book whose name I was unable to pronounce. Panacea. And I'm half, yes, that one. And yeah. I am halfway through it and thoroughly enjoying it. That's
1: awesome. Um, the other – not not to say the other two uh... – Interviews weren't awesome. Becky Spratford just blew my mind. And she's got a great voice. I don't know if like uh you were thinking that when we were interviewing her, but like not only is she just so commanding with like making being a reader's advisory librarian like the most exciting thing ever, but she's got a great voice for radio. So I was just I was enjoying the entire thing.
0: Well, you can tell that she's the one person of everybody we interviewed who spends a lot of time talking to people. And yeah. I'm sure she trains people in groups and she has a very Polished, um, we have addressing people that still comes off as very genuine and, and friendly and one to one. Of all the people we interviewed, I'm pretty sure Becky didn't need us there. Yeah, we could have just set up, we could have just been like hit play or hit record, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. um, definitely a great thing, and and I really felt a kinship, um, to her as we, you know, also try to, to, to suggest books to people. So, uh, definitely a kinship there. And then Nancy Holder, listen. What else can you say about Nancy Holder? What did you? How does she refer to us, Rob?
1: Uh, yeah, the, at the very end of the interview, she said mm-hmm.
0: we're cute. Yeah, that's yeah. you know how many times we've been told that on this podcast? Zero. Well, counting this once. Well, yeah, one. So, so Nancy was awesome too. And uh, a lot of really cool insight into um, writing in someone else's world and, like, the kind of fan reactions to that. So all three of these interviews, brilliant. Adam, to the two that we played for you a couple weeks ago, um, definitely a very successful uh, group of interviews at StokerCon.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy with everything. And um, it kind of makes me want to just ditch reading people's books and just, like, go in and interview them cold. We just got to get the – we got to choose the right people interview, I'm thinking you You just don't want (laughs) want to read books anymore
0: is what it is (laughs) not at all i love reading books like how many weeks can we squeeze in before i have to read another book (laughs) all right we do have one more episode for you guys uh if you come back next week you are going to hear in its entirety the podcast panel that we participated in right between the ears podcasting for horror writers and uh, who knows, maybe a little bit more talk about StokerCon, and then uh, we promise not to mention StokerCon again till next year.
1: Yeah, we're going to bury that thing at sea because it was on a boat. We're going to bury
0: it at and sea. A boat, on a boat that may have already sunk. I mean, that boat <laughs> we talked about on the first StokerCon episode was not not in the best shape, so yeah. it's taken on water. Yeah.
1: All right, so join us again next week for that uh, Right Between the Years podcasting panel. Until next time, I'm Rob Olson.
3: And I'm Livia Snutton. Keep reading.